Surprising early election results in Peru and Ecuador indicate just how fragmented the region is becoming politically. France's Emmanuel Macron orders the closure of one of the country's top elite schools in a bid for education equality. And we say cheers to the reopening of pubs, hairdressers and shops in England. Monocle's contributors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Monday, the 12th of April, and I'm Carlotta Rebello, coming to you live from Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm joined today by Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Paige Reynolds. Welcome both back to the programme. Fernando, I'll start with you first. Uh, Usually your Sunday evenings are filled with with great new films and you have lots to tell us uh, on Mondays here on the late edition. Have you watched anything nice this weekend? Were you busy watching the bath? Just tell us all about it. I was in Calot for the first time. I didn't need to, you know, sleep that late because the BAFTAs were here in the UK. Actually, it was quite an okay ceremony. I mean, there was some kind of mishaps there, here and there. But I love the speech from the best supporting actress, uh, Ye Jung Jung from Minari. She plays the grandmother. She was so funny and she was kind of, I think it was a mistake when she was giving, but she said she's thankful for the snobbish British <laughs> for enjoying her role in the film. I think she said that kind of accidentally, but it was quite heartwarming as well and and that film is great Minari I mean it's, it, it, I would recommend everyone to see and I think it, it is out it is available whatever you can stream it buy it uh, do it Paige you're nodding along uh, have you seen Minari yet I mean you don't usually join us on a Monday so I have so many things to ask you so <laughs> I guess one have you watched Minari and two what have you been up to recently you know what uh, mea culpa I haven't watched Minari yet it's on my list I was waiting for it to to slip onto Amazon Prime, which is where I do watch most of my films, I must say. Uh, But it's on my list for this week. If I have time, though, Carlotta, because it's Monday the 12th. Everything has finally started to reopen in London. We'll be talking about that a little later on in the show, of course. But even kind of this lunchtime, going out into Marlebone, seeing a lot of those kind of restaurants, which I've sort of been walking past and they've been totally empty. There's now a couple of tables on the street. There's people kind of eating lunch together. It it feels a little bit like life is coming back. Even though it's snowing in some places in London, it does feel like life is coming back. Summer might be beginning. I it's, feel, it's a good vibe. I, I feel like it wouldn't be, you know, British enough if on the week <laughs> that we're allowed to be outdoors, uh, it wouldn't snow or rain. I, 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 when I was walking into the office this morning and just seeing, you know, some of the restaurants and cafes around Marylebone, they were putting their tables and chairs out. For this, like, split second, it's like, oh, yeah, that's how it used to look. Because we've been so used to not seeing anything and having these wide pavements. Like, oh, yes. Uh, and I agree, it was just so nice at lunchtime to see a bit of life back in London. Fernando and Paige, thanks for being here on the late edition. Let's begin today's programme with a look at Ecuador and Peru. Two nations that went to the polls this weekend with surprising results. In Ecuador, a win for Conservative candidate Guillermo Lasso. And in Peru, preliminary results put the leftist... Pedro Castillo in the lead. Uh, Fernando, can you unpack these results for us? Uh, One thing that it seems to show is just how fragmented the region is becoming politically. Very much so, and and precisely because it's so fragmented. I mean, I would say don't trust the polls because, Hmm. I mean, we were here previewing the elections and 
we kind of got it wrong. I mean, not not only us, but I think most of the media, even in Peru. Uh, so Guillermo Lasso did win uh, uh, in Ecuador. Is his third try, uh, and it's interesting because Andres Arauz was the favorite to win. But I think Carlota does something very interesting here. Uh, he was supported by Rafael Correa, the former Ecuadorian president, which is popular by some. But the problem is because he's been accused of all sorts of things. He's been exiled to Belgium. There is a segment of the electorate from the left, I would say, they wouldn't feel comfortable voting for Andres, and they voted in the first um, in, in the first round to Jakub Perez, and I don't think the vote was transferred to the second round. So it's kind of there's kind of this moral moralism in a way attached to that as well. And in Peru is a completely different story. I mean, we don't know actually who is going to the second round so mm. far. Uh, but Pedro Castillo, as you rightly said, and again, nobody was predicting. Pedro Castillo had 7% of the vote. He's a leftist. Um, and it's funny, even CNN and, and Espanol, when they show all the candidates, they had like a, a picture of all, all of them except for him. <laughs> they were like, you know, he's not going to go to the second round. Uh, but, you know, we have to wait and see. But extremely fragmented. It's going to be very difficult to govern Peru, I would say, whoever wins. Uh, Paige, what do you make of uh, Fernanda's comments there? And I, I guess the broader question is, you know, is this a signal exactly because they're the unexpected candidates, the ones that no one is paying attention, that the region is perhaps moving away from, you know, the big figures and, you know, the powerful landslide victories that we were used to see uh, in that side of the world? Yeah, it certainly feels a lot more fractured, I think, at the moment. And, you know, I think within fractured politics, I think you can kind of look at it from a, from a negative and from a positive. I think in, in times of uncertainty, in times of fracture, there's also that opportunity for change. You know, there's opportunity for other people to kind of push up from the ground and really kind of make their mark, which I think is exciting. Um, as kind of Fernando notes in Ecuador, it feels like that decision to not vote for Andres Arauz um, because of his connections to Correo, that feels like a, maybe a new beginning for Ecuadorian politics. Um, I was reading that it's kind of a move away from Correism, which is the, obviously the politics which defined uh, Correo and, and perhaps would have defined uh, Andres Arauz as well. Um, and, you know, it's such a difficult situation at the moment as well with kind of the, the pandemic and a lot of economic hardship. I think people are really looking for looking for change because what's happening right now isn't working. I mean, Peru, terrible sort of pandemic uh, impact there. And I think I wonder how that's really uh, influencing people's people's voting decisions at the moment. Um, and, you know, me and Fernando were discussing earlier, is, is there going to be another sort of pink wave? Is, is socialism going to kind of come up again in, in Latin America? And I think everyone's sort of holding back at the moment on saying that. And I think just in general, I think that the left has just got so many challenges worldwide. I think, um, you know, it's a very broad church and I think it's, it's, it's struggled a bit to adapt to a globalised world to meet those challenges. Um, I mean, you can look at, in the UK, look at kind of Corbyn's defeat, you know, you look at Syriza in, in Greece as well. I think you can see that people are, are kind of, even within the left, are very, very factionalised at the moment. And maybe this is also kind of what's happening in in, in Latin America. It's a trend that we almost copied as well from Europe because, you know, I think you can see the traditional leftist parties, they are losing quite a lot. But then you see the resurgence of the Greens and everything. But I think at some point, the leftist movements, they will have to have a proper conversation because otherwise they will keep losing elections. Uh, do, do you know what I mean? Because you need to combine those two uh, types of voters, even though they're becoming increasingly different. Uh, but then we give space for the right-wing parties to win forever.
Well, let's turn now to France, where President Emmanuel Macron is pushing ahead with his plans to boost social mobility and last week announced the closure of the country's prestigious École Nationale d'Administration, or ENA, which has been the training ground for French leaders and attended by Macron himself. Agnès Poirier is a journalist and earlier she joined us on The Globalist to talk about what the closure of one of the country's more elitist schools could mean for education equality. Let's have a listen to Agnès explain what was Charles de Gaulle's grand plan when he founded the school at the end of World War II. The principle on which he founded the ENA was uh, very democratic and very meritocratic in the sense that um, with ENA, you, you, there is an entrance exam uh, and you get the, the most gifted uh, people, uh, students, wherever they come from, wh- whatever their social or ethnic origin. And there is something that, it, that is extremely attractive to the most gi- gifted but also impoverished students is that you get paid from the beginning, uh, from, you know, uh, uh, day one of entering ENA, you belong to the civil civil service and you're paid a decent salary. So it means that a lot of students from outside of Paris, um, you know, gifted, uh, bookish, because there's a lot of knowledge to absorb in order to get in, um, just flock to to Paris. At the time, the ENA was based in Paris and uh, a few years ago, it was transferred to Strasbourg um, in an attempt to actually make it less Parisian. That was the journalist Agnes Poirier there speaking to us earlier on The Globalist. Uh, Paige, what do you make of the decision by Emmanuel Macron? Some would argue that there is a place in society for these elite schools after all. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting one. I think the, the word elite is so loaded mm. in and of itself with, with, with negative connotations and in some instances, you know, rightly so, when you when you talk about British society and, and the elitism that exists here within higher education, or you know, actually take one step back, not even higher education, within education as a whole, kind of from from sort of the age of eleven and and sort of into uh, political life. But what Agnes was saying about ENA is super interesting, particularly in regards to the fact that they're even paying salaries and they have an entrance exam that is you know, seemingly very meritocratic. And I wonder, would it not kind of be better to to actually build on, on this kind of inclusive way of, of getting access towards kind of the, the resources there and, and to the education that's offered? Um, so it does seem a little bit, it does seem a little bit tricky, but, you know, in terms of, of, of what's happened in the UK, I mean, we, we all know that, Pretty much everyone in, in British political life went to either Oxford or, or Cambridge. And it's not so much the schools, but it's it's that old boys network that I think is is problematic because it, it breeds a certain type of confidence. It breeds a certain type of uh, entitlement to certain things or to certain areas or, or sort of uh, careers as well. And I wonder whether there's some of that might be happening in France as well, perhaps the people that go to these schools therefore feel entitled to things in later life or feel like they can kind of go in through the back door. I mean, it, it, if you look at the UK, look what's happening to former Prime Minister David Cameron right now. Um, he's embroiled in, in, in a, a kind of little scandal over um, 
a uh, financial firm that he now consults for. Um, he was sort of lobbying via text. He he met Matt Hancock for a for a, for a private drink. I mean, then they both studied the exact same thing at Oxford. You know, it, it kind of when you then sort of take a step back and you look at where all these people came from, you then see oh maybe maybe there was a problem with that school and 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 how they handled it. If that's kind of how they're handling things now, but it's it's incredibly tricky, I think, and 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 I, I I'm not entirely sure I have the solution. Well, Fernanda, let's stay with that thought from Paige about you know this, the uh, the reality uh, here in the UK because there was a story on today's edition of the Times here in London um, that uh, is basically saying that uh, UK university tutors are basically being told not to dock marks for spelling mistakes in technical subjects. Basically saying if uh, the student does know you know the contents, uh, they shouldn't have their marks de- uh, deducted because uh, of English uh, language. And this is saying that requiring good English could be seen as something that is elitist, particularly for minorities, for immigrant students that might be at a disadvantage. W- what are your thoughts on this? It's, it's, it is a difficult one, I have to say, Carlotta. First of all, I think we should be flexible. But at the same time, I think it's a little bit condescending to saying, oh, you know, for the ethnic students or foreigners, whatever. First of all, because, you know, as a foreigner and ethnic student myself, I think actually those people, they would really be careful and put the right accents, perhaps even more than, than a local, because, you know, they, they have to study. They really want to make sure it's all right. So I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, especially if it's a technical subject, sometimes... The way you write is actually quite important. But, you know, of course, I agree that we need to discuss about elitism in general because it is a huge problem. You know, uh, we're talking about here in the UK, but in my country, Brazil, in France, as we can see, it's serious. I mean, when you look not only at the political, but the top lawyers, the top TV personalities, they people, you know, the majority study the kind of in private schools or, or they are quite privileged in some way. So we should definitely look into that. But that one about the spelling mistakes, um, I'm, not, I'm not too sure, you know, a little bit condescending, in my opinion. Paige? Yeah, that's actually really interesting, I guess, to, to, to hear you say that, particularly, you know, as you, you work technically in your, in your second language as well, because kind of, I guess, f- from my perspective, I actually kind of did see that as, as kind of a positive thing, um, just because I guess what's difficult is, is, is I feel like I've definitely had a quite a privileged education and I'm aware of how I was sort of taught little tricks you know how to write in a certain type of way to get people to sort of believe your argument or how to kind of put things in a way that seemed very convincing and I just think it's it kind of has given me a, a maybe a confidence in how I write and sort of present things that I think you know certain certain other people from different backgrounds wouldn't have and maybe that also comes down to the use of words spelling um language in general um and i guess it's all about kind of what we value as well it's like surely it's actually the ideas that these people are having and kind of how they argue them and how they provide solutions to all these kind of issues which is what you're doing in university subjects surely that's that's actually what's most important um but obviously you know there's, I can see how it talks on both ways as well and see people are just going to say standards are slipping. So <laughs> I'm not sure, but I, I think we can make a middle ground, really, hopefully, where you can have a more open way of, of educating people that's more about ideas and less about the technicalities. Um, and maybe this is part of the part of the way to it. Well, just having a debate about it just seems like already a good step towards the right direction. Well, finally, on today's late edition, remember this sound. You 
you might think we're looking ahead into the future of Paige Reynolds' evening, but no, the grand reopening slowly has begun here in the UK. As today marks the day, pubs, restaurants, hairdressers and shops in England are finally allowed to welcome back customers. Uh, well, as I might have just hinted there, uh, Paige, you have been quite jittery all morning and, you know, trying to get all the work done early so you can arrive dutifully on time to your lo- local pub this evening. Um I guess excited is not even the right question. Just, you know, tell us about your plans. Well, Carlos, you thought I was excited about the pub, but actually I was really nervous about the late edition. That's, that, <laughs> that's been all the jitters. That's on me. Um, no, I am, I am very excited to get back down the pub, even though I'm sure that's one of the most British things I've said on the late edition. And I do feel like when I kind of take to Twitter and I see how sort of the rest of the world is looking at, at the UK, I am. I, I have a sense of pride, but maybe a little sense of shame as well. There's definitely photos, there have been photos sort of circulating today, I think, of people in the pub at about 8.17am um, having a pint. And um, yeah, I, I feel pride, but I understand how maybe the rest of the world might might view it. But no, I'm very excited to get um, back down to the pub. I'm just excited about hospitality coming back in general. I mean, me and Faye were just talking last week about um, actually about meal boxes and kind of whether that would be a viable revenue stream for, for the hospitality industry. And we were both saying, oh, we just want to go back to a restaurant. And the fact that that's going to be able to happen as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly uh, in- excited. I do, I do see why there would be a bit of hesitancy towards it as well and I think there's already been some interesting conversations about you know a lot of people saying I don't know if I'm ready for this I think you know the fact that we've had this three-month lockdown I think it has caused quite a lot of social anxiety obviously the you know the virus is receding massively that's great news but we haven't all been vaccinated yet you know there is still a little bit of of uh yeah a bit of hesitancy I think towards everything that's happening um and you know I think Boris Johnson today was saying enjoy your freedom but do be wary and it Again, it feels like a kind of government way of saying, you know, you can do what you want, but don't hold us responsible if you, if you kind of, you know, end up getting sick or something. So I don't know. It's a little, it's great, tinged with a little bit of, oh, let's hope this kind of all goes the right way. Um, but, you know, ultimately... I'm excited about my pint of Guinness this evening. Well, I, for one, have been the one that's been, when I speak to all my friends and even with you guys here in the office, um, I've been the last one to the party in terms of booking things. I think I'm just so bruised from last year's reopening and then closure two weeks later that I basically refuse to book anything. And when people have asked me, it's like, "Uh, we'll be in lockdown in two weeks and I just need to snap out of it. Maybe a cold pint of Guinness is the way to fix that page. Maybe you're on to something. I think I am. Fernando, a very tricky question. Are you more excited about pubs, restaurants or hairdressers? I've got to be honest, hairdressers. (laughs) And, And not only hairdressers, but, you know, facialists or any type of kind of beauty service, which I think was incredibly missed uh, during those four months. Uh, actually, I have an appointment next Monday. So, Carlotta, you see me you know, live on the late edition of a new haircut. And, you know, I, I really did miss that. I mean, I think they are artists, you know. I think they do wonders to your hair. I mean, I, I couldn't live without a hairdresser. So, kudos to Josh, if you're listening. Uh, and, you know, and, and you know how I'm celebrating tonight as well. Oh, fair. Uh, I will see 
an osteopath as well, which I've been kind of holding back to see my ankle. So you know what I mean? So before I go for a pint, let me look at my ankle and my hair <laughs> you wanna be and perfect. my face. You want to be perfect. Exactly, exactly. Well, if the listeners needed any <laughs> teaser for next Monday's late edition, we can have live commentary on Fernando's post-lockdown <laughs> hairstyle. That's all for today's late edition. A big thank you to Fernando Augusto Pacheco and to Paige Reynolds and to our studio manager, Steph Chungo. I'm Carlotta Rebello here at Midori House in London. The late edition is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for being with us.